And I want to welcome all the folks who are with us live streaming right now all over the world, across the country, and even right here in our community for people who are shut in. We pray for you. We thank God for you, and we're glad you're here. We hope you're having a great time with Jesus where you are. If you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking today in verses 11 through 25 as we're focusing in today on the hope of living like Jesus, or the hope of being like Jesus, in our ongoing series called Living Hope in a Hopeless World. Peter is writing to a group of persecuted believers who are living in what is now northern Turkey. And if you've been following what's happened in Turkey all lately, you know that believers there are still having a very difficult time. It's not easy anywhere to truly live for Jesus Christ. But Peter wrote this letter to encourage them and to remind them that in Jesus we have new birth into a living hope. And as we see Christ living out in us, even in the midst of our trials and circumstances, even persecution, as we see Jesus living his life out through us to make a difference, it gives us hope that Christ is really alive in us. And others see that as well. And God uses that to draw people to himself. Here's how Peter encouraged these people after you're just spending the first part of the book talking about, here's your new identity. Now he's shifting over to talk about, now this is how you live. And he says in verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your, king, your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wow, let's pray together. God, what an encouragement this word must have been to believers who were like us, living by faith in a Jesus they had never seen, but whom they loved. And you were living your life out through them, and the world was persecuting them as they did you. And yet in the midst of what many would think would cause discouragement, they were living a hope 
and you were using them to make a difference in extraordinary ways. Just as you are doing right here through so many who are living for you today. So Lord, as we open this up, encourage us. This is radical stuff, but it was to be the norm for Christians who, are, who have and who are a living hope in a hopeless world. And we thank you, God, for what you'll show us in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year, about 15 million people have their identity stolen and used by people to commit all kinds of crimes. In her book, Because He Loves, How Christ Transforms Our Daily Life, Elise Fitzpatrick wrote about that this way. Just in case you're unaware, she said, identity theft occurs when someone steals your name and other personal information for fraudulent use. Most of us are dismayed by this new cyber age crime, and we wouldn't assume that the theft of another person's identity is ever acceptable behavior. The surprising reality, however, is that Christians are, by definition, people who have someone else's identity. They're called Christians because they've taken the identity of someone else, Jesus the Christ. And not only have you been given an identity that you weren't born with or that you didn't earn the right to use, but you're invited to empty the checking account and use all the benefits this identity brings. This is, she said, so much better than identity theft. It's an identity gift. You see, what a lot of Christians don't realize is that when you become a follower of Jesus, you become a different person. I am not the man I used to be. My personality may be the same. I may have my same frailties and weaknesses, but I'm not the same person. I can't be the same person with Jesus living in me as I was when he wasn't. I have a new identity. That new identity is Christ in me. It's Christ in you if you're a Christian, and Jesus is molding you and shaping you to become more like him. And the more you see his life, the more you see his character, the more you see his word, his spirit alive in you, the more it fosters a living hope that you really belong to Jesus. You see, that's why the apostles wrote to encourage believers the way they did. You remember what Paul told the Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. Hallelujah for that. The new is here. And Peter reminded these same persecuted believers whom he wrote to of their new identity. We looked at it last week, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You remember? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Look at this. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Before you didn't belong to God, Peter said, but now you do. You have a new identity. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. God did this. You remember? Last week we said it was God who is taking us like living stones and building us into a spiritual house in which he dwells. 
That spiritual house is his church, his body. Jesus is bodily alive at the right hand of God. He's coming again someday in glory, bodily, physically to the earth. So how is Jesus' presence made known in the world today, amongst us and amongst the nations? It's through his church, through you and me, the body of Christ. We are Christ's physical presence in the world today. Where you are, Jesus is. And he's building us like living stones. And now that you have already received this new life, this new identity, now, Peter said, you're called to live true to who you really are. Not who you were, who you are now in Jesus. And that's why Peter is addressing it this way in this section of his letter, the hope of living like Jesus. That's why he said, dear friends, verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, amongst the Gentiles. The word is the ethne, amongst the nations. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. You used to live in that stuff, but it's out of place for you now. It doesn't fit. It doesn't compute. Abstain from those sinful desires. They're waging war against the new you. You used to be comfortable in that sin, but now you can't be. You still sin, but you bring it to God and confess it. And it's interesting, the focus isn't on what you must avoid. It's never about, I got to sin less. It's always about the one you're pursuing. Peter said in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's not about what you're running away from. It's about who you are living for. Live such good lives. Intrinsically good lives is the word. The way Jesus lived. Let him live it out through you. Live that life among the pagans so that they can see his glory in you. You have a new identity, now live it. That's the hope of living like Jesus. And Peter reminds them we display a living hope when we live, excuse me, when we and others see Jesus living in us. How will he be seen? When, like Jesus, we live right and do good. And when, like Jesus, we fear God and live mindful of him. We display a living hope when we live like Jesus, doing right and doing good. Peter put it like this in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. People who live right and do good leave a testimony that cannot be denied. Even by the most ardent people who may oppose them. 
I was reading a, a piece that was telling, uh, it came from a ministry called Open Doors. Um, Open Doors is a ministry that ministers particularly to the persecuted church. And there are more people being persecuted for day, today for Jesus around the world than at any time in history. It said in this article, according to Open Doors Ministry, that in the mid-1990s, government officials in China became so fed up with sky-high rates of crime, drug addiction, and sickness in the county of Lankan Lahu, Yunnan province that they turned for help to the only model citizens they knew in the county, the Christians. This is China we're talking about here. The government officials were quoted as saying this, we had to admit that the Lehu people were a, were a dead loss because of their addiction to opium. This is from one official who did not want to be named. Their addiction made them weak and sick. Then they would go to one of their priests who required animal sacrifices of such extravagance that the people became poor. And because they were so poor, they stole from each other, and law and order deteriorated. It was a vicious cycle that no amount of government propaganda could break. The government officials said, we noticed, however, that in some villages in the county, the Lehu people were prosperous and peace-loving. There was no drug problem or any stealing or social problems. Households had a plentiful supply of pigs, oxen, and chickens. So we commissioned a survey to find out why these villages were different. To our astonishment and embarrassment, we discovered the key factor was that these villages had a majority of Christians. Officials launched a daring experiment in 1998, the likes of which would have been unthinkable in China just 10 years prior. They sponsored Christians to go into these troublesome rural villages and share their faith. Now, according to Open Doors USA, they started by picking out the worst village, which had 240 people, 107 of whom were hopelessly addicted to opium. Christian Lehus were bussed into the village at government expense, and the villagers were herded together by the police and made to listen to the testimony of the Christians. <laughs> A year later, there were 17 converts in that village and they began to grow richer because they stopped spending money on drugs. Eight of the 17 converts had enough money to own sewing machines and start their own small business. By early 2002, 83 of those villagers were Christians, and the prosperity had begun to spread. The government officials said, we are delighted with the results and have been extending this tactic to many other villages since then. People, there is a reason that China has one of the fastest growing Christian conversion rates in the world. Christians are being persecuted there. Many of the Christians are living underground. And the gospel is spreading like a fire. because of the way the people are living.
They're living in such contrast to the world around them that even anti-Christian government officials can't deny the power of their lives. That's the difference these persecuted believers were, were making in northern Turkey when they were living there and why Peter wrote to them. Peter told them that living right and doing good was making them model citizens of heaven and on earth. Peter told them in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And he goes on to tell them what? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Every human authority. Live such good lives among the pagans. The word is literally live a noble lifestyle. Live right. Do good. Do that, he said, by submitting to some of the same authorities that are opposing you. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, literally every human creature. Peter was telling these Christians, live different. Christians, he's telling them, don't live to assert their will for their benefit. They live to do God's will for his benefit and the glory of his kingdom. That's why Peter went on to say in verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. By doing good. It's a term here in this context that indicates by doing good will to others. It's the same Christ-like attitude that Jesus demonstrated. And it's what Paul admonished his people to follow. Like in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Verse 5, in your relationships with others or with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. When you do this, it will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. People, we're living in a world that doesn't do right most of the time. It's very selfishly oriented. If you do anything other-minded, or you just do the right thing when others wouldn't, it calls attention to the difference. And people don't know what to do with it. You ever had a clerk at a store give you too much change? You get to the car, you see, oops. You have to bring it back. I got home the other day from the store. I had a watermelon that wasn't on the list. I didn't pay for it. So the next time I went to the line, I said to the guy, I got a watermelon, but you need to charge me for two. He said, why do you want me to do that? I said, because I got home last time with a watermelon I didn't pay for. So you need to charge me for two watermelons. Why are you doing that? Ah, <laughs> uh, because it's the right thing to do. Mark Twain used to say, always do right, it will gratify some people and astonish the rest. <laughs> In a hopeless world of people doing wrong, right shines. And Peter said it can change their view of Christians and even of Christ. 
Verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. The ignorant talk, they have no comprehension, no, no real understanding of who Christians are. Foolish people, without reason is the word. A lack of common sense perception of either natural or spiritual things in the way God designed the world. They, they don't get it. So what were some of the ignorant talk by foolish people in Peter's day? Well, these Christians were persecuted, but people had thoughts like these. Christians are disloyal to the state and to Caesar. They weren't. They also felt that the Christians are teaching slaves that they all ought to be free in rebellion. They weren't teaching that. They thought Christians had anti-social values, and they hated people because they weren't participating in some of the pagan rituals. How about this one? They accused some of the Christians of cannibalism because they would be overheard saying that they were eating the body and blood of Christ at communion. They were even accused of being atheists because they had no visible idols that they worshipped. Peter said, live right and do good, and the beauty of your lives will shine Christ, and God will use that to silence that foolishness. Live as free people. Verse 16, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. You know, that free could cause a lot of trouble if we don't understand it right. Free of restraint is the word. Free to live as you want is the word. Now, Peter goes on to say, Look, don't use your freedom for evil as a cover-up for evil, as a malicious cloak. Don't, don't go out and live however you want in sin and go do that because you think, well, God will forgive me. I can live however I want. I've had people tell me that. Christians tell me that. Well, we're living together, but God will forgive us. What? Live free of restraint. Live how you want. Once you were slaves to sin, but now you live as slaves to God, which is the ultimate freedom. So, we live for what we want. And if Christ is alive in you, you will want to live for Jesus, not for sin. I'm surprised anybody talks to me anymore, but when people come and tell me that they're doing this stuff and they're living in this sin, and they say that they're Christians, they say, you know what? I'm not your judge, but I gotta tell you this. I have a strong suspicion you're not really a Christian because if you're still wanting to sin, there's not much evidence that Jesus is living in you because Jesus does not want to live like that. Yes, we still sin. Yes, we still fall. Yes, we still make mistakes. But we handle it a whole lot different than we used to when we didn't have Jesus living there. How can you want to sin if Christ is living in you? Peter said you can't. Don't use it as a cover-up for evil. You see, even John, the apostle, when he was writing, he said in 1 John 2, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. 
And people, in the end, it's not about how we live that really matters. It's how Jesus lives his life in us that really matters. And when people know you are a Christian, how you live doesn't really reflect on you anymore. It reflects on how they see Jesus. How you live reflects on how they see Jesus when they know you're a Christian. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul told the Colossians. So Peter summed it up like this, verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. How Christians talk about other Christians reflects on Jesus. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You notice the last two? Fear God, honor the emperor. Those are not in conflict. Jesus did it perfectly. Give the Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God. He never got the two confused. In fact, we are to be model citizens here on earth, submitting to the government authorities, unless they're asking us to do something immoral, illegal, or contrary to the word. If they're asking us to do something that God has told us to obey and, we're, and they're asking us not to do it, we need to respond like the apostles did. Do you remember in Acts chapter 5 when the Sanhedrin came and said to the apostles, you're not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They were prohibiting them from doing it. And the apostles politely replied in Acts 5, 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. So we submit to the authorities because they're God-ordained. We live right and we do good. And the only time we don't is when it's a matter of obeying God or obeying the authority. And you always obey God. Not only by living right and doing good, but we display a living hope when, like Jesus, we fear God and live mindful of him. Peter said in verse 18, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, 
But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You ever wonder how early Christians lived? I uh, came across this piece, James Bryan Smith, in his book, The Good and Beautiful Community, published in 2010, InterVarsity Press. In his book, he quotes an, from an early Christian document known as the Epistle to Diognetus, or Diognetus. It was written between, somewhere between 120 and 200 A.D., very early in the Christian experience. It was believed to have been written by a man named Athenagoras. And at one point, this man is describing how he sees Christians living in his day, in the second century. This is what he wrote. The difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. Christians do not live in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect, not practice any eccentric way of life. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, with each man's lot already determined. And they conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet, and other habits. In other words, you're not going to tell these people are Christians just simply by looking at them. They live in your neighborhood. They wear your clothes. They, they eat the same kind of food. When you just look at them, you can't tell. There's not, they don't have closed communities. They're among us everywhere. Nevertheless, he said, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable and even surprising. For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior there is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in the heavens. They obey the prescribed laws, but in their own private lives, they transcend the laws. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death, they're quickened into life. They are poor, yet are making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy, and for the good they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers. People, we are in the world, but not of it. We are in the world, but not of it. We fear God, and we live mindful of him. We live the same in many ways as others around us. We don't look that different in appearance. But we live totally different in a way that they can see. Usually, in the way we respond to mistreatment and adversity. Christians are to respond to their mistreatment in a way opposite of what people expect. 
People expect us to retaliate. They expect us to get even. They expect us to hate. But when we don't, they may interpret that initially as weakness, but over time they begin to see Jesus in a way that may be more powerful than any other. Peter said, Jesus called you to this and left you an example you could follow. Verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Peter sets this in the context of first century slavery. Slavery in the first century was a bit different than the slavery in America prior to the Civil War. There was forced servitude in the days of Peter, but a lot of slavery was not like that. Many times, people would sell themselves into servitude in exchange for food, clothing, shelter, and they would do it for a period of time, almost like employment. There were even slavery contracts, indentured contracts. So a person would, he and his family would come to live with some guy, he would work for him and benefit from that. That's why sometimes slavery in the Bible is often compared to employment today. People would also sell themselves into slavery to learn a skill or a trade. So a man, instead of paying today to go to trade school or paying tuition to go to college, he would sign a contract for a number of years, I'm going to work for you, and in exchange, you're going to teach me your trade. And when I get done, I am going to be done with this period of time, and I'm going to go out and hopefully use that trade to make a living. Even though a lot of the slavery there was voluntary, once you sold yourself into slavery, you were under the hand of a master. It was like having a contract. You couldn't just break it. Some of the masters were really good, and others were horrible, harsh. Anybody here ever have a boss that felt like a slave owner? Any employers here who ever had employees that felt like rebellious slaves? Peter tells these people, look, you sold yourself probably into this servitude and you have a contract and now you're a Christian and you got a boss that's not very good. What do you do? You submit to him. The word submit is a, uh, it's really a military term. It means to rank under. It's to understand your place and position in a higher order. That's why he said in verse 18, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Out of a deep respect for God, and because you are conscious of God, verse 19, because you're mindful of him, that God is sovereign, he has a purpose in everything that happens, he knew about the situation you were in and that you would be a Christian and your boss is not, he knew things would be good or harsh, he knew all of that, and God has a purpose in it, that's why you're there, so submit yourself in that situation and let God work his purpose in you and through you to accomplish his will. You were called to this. 
You were called to this. And when you do this, it's commendable before God. God approves of this because you're doing it for him. Verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He surrendered himself more to the Father. So Peter is telling these folks, look, I know you're being misjudged. I know you're being gossiped about. I know you're being falsely accused. I know you're being mistreated. But they're not mistreating you. They're mistreating Jesus, as they always have. And Jesus in you wants now to respond to that the way he always has. He didn't retaliate. He made no threats. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. People, I have a lot to learn about this stuff because naturally on my own, I'm not going to do that. I have a sense of justice. I want to get even. People gossip about me or say things behind my back. Naturally, I want to get even. But I don't anymore. You can't do what I do, or you can't live for Jesus anywhere without people having sometimes a poor opinion of you because you don't fit in all the time. Over the years, I've had people come and say to me, Larry, do you know what so-and-so in town is saying about you? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. What are you going to do about it? I say, nothing. I'm not going to do anything about it. Number one, it isn't true, and no matter what I say, it isn't going to change their opinion. And Jesus said, I don't have to respond. He said, what I need to do is entrust myself to him who judges justly. God keeps the books. He sees it all. He knows. What I say about other people, I'm going to have to answer to God for that. What they say about me, they're going to have to answer to God about that. And you know what? I'm okay with that because he judges justly. It's not my fight. And as much as I appreciate your concern for my reputation, it's not your fight either. That's God's battle. So we entrust him. People ever lie about you, malign you, talk about you behind your back, accuse you of things you didn't do, don't give you credit for what you did do? People ever do that stuff to you? Peter said, when that happens, see it an opportunity to be different. Jesus left you an example. You should follow in his steps. How far did Jesus take it? Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. 
so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus surrendered himself, and God used that surrender to save us and return us to God. And you know what? There are times when we respond like this, when Jesus responds like this through us, that God is still using it to bring people to himself. And when we live like Jesus, people notice because it's not us, it's him that they see. Doug Nichols in Leadership Magazine a few years ago was telling about a time when he was serving with Operation Mobilization in India. It was in the late 60s. He contracted tuberculosis, which was a problem in the region where he was working, and he was forced into a sanitarium for several months. Now, he didn't speak the language, but he thought, you know, God's got me here for a purpose, and so he tried to pass out Christian literature in the language of the people in the sanitarium. He tried to give it to nurses, doctors, attendants, even to patients who were sick all around him. Nobody would take it. Nobody would take it. He found out later that they were not happy he was there. They viewed him as a rich American taking up their precious space and resources in their government-run sanitarium. They resented his being there. They weren't going to take anything he offered. He said, the first few nights in the sanitarium, I woke up around 2 a.m. coughing. And during one of my coughing fits, I looked across the room, and I saw an older, more feeble gentleman who had a worse case of TB sitting on the edge of his bed trying to stand, and he couldn't stand up. And every time he tried, he kept falling back, and eventually he gave up, fell back on his bed, and he said, I could hear him crying softly. I didn't understand what he was trying to do, but the next morning I realized that what the man had been trying to do, he had been trying to get up and go to the bathroom. The stench in our ward was awful. Other patients yelled insults at the man. Angry nurses moved him roughly from side to side as they cleaned up the mess. One nurse slapped him. The old man curled into a ball and wept. The next night, I again woke up coughing. I noticed the man across the aisle sit up again and try to stand. But like the night before, he fell back whimpering. I don't like bad smells, he wrote, and I didn't want to become involved. But I got out of bed and I went over to him. And when I touched his shoulder, his eyes opened wide with fear, expecting another beating. I smiled, put my arms under him, and picked him up. He was very light due to the old age and advanced TB. I carried him into the bathroom, which was just a filthy small room with a hole in the floor. I stood behind him with my arms under his armpits as he took care of himself. And he, after he finished, I picked him up, carried him back to his bed. As I laid him down, he kissed me on the cheek and smiled, said something I couldn't understand. The next morning, another patient woke me and handed me a steaming cup of tea and motioned with his hands 
that he wanted one of my booklets that I had been trying to pass out about Jesus. As the sun rose, other patients approached me and indicated they also wanted the booklets I had tried to distribute before. Throughout the day, nurses started coming, and interns and doctors began asking me for the literature. Weeks later, an evangelist who spoke the language visited me, and he talked to others, and as he did so, he discovered that several of the people there, doctors, nurses, patients, had put their trust in Christ as their Savior as a result of reading the literature I had given them. What did it take to reach these people with the gospel? It wasn't health, it wasn't ability, it wasn't money, it wasn't speaking the language or persuasive talk. In the end, I simply took a trip to the bathroom the way Jesus would. Peter told these Christians, look, I know you're going through the ringer. And there's people all around you with foolish, ignorant talk. They don't understand what they're doing. But you're new people now. Christ lives in you. And so he's living in you and through you the way he always has. So live right and do good. Fear God. Be mindful of him. He is at work. He is in control. It's not about you, it's about him. Let him live it out in those moments. And when others see that, and when you see that, it's Jesus they will see. And when you see that, you will experience the living hope that he is. A living hope in a hopeless world. God, thank you. We were called to this. Every situation has a purpose. It is God who works in you to will and to act for his good purpose. Lord, I don't get this right all the time. So I want you to help me, because I can't do this. We can't do this. You have to do this. But with your help, we can live right and we can do good. We can live in awesome respect of God and be mindful of you, that you are in all of these things. And as we see you lived out through us, God, let this living hope draw others to you. And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen.